Ready to worship the Lord through the study of his word together? All right, then if I could, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and join me in the uh, New Testament book of Hebrews toward the end of your Bible, the book of Hebrews 10th chapter. Hebrews chapter 10, if you perhaps got out of the house without a Bible today, just raise your hand. We don't want to embarrass you, but we'd sure love to put a copy of the scriptures in your hand because you'll get more out of your time with us. And there is a little note page in your bulletin. If you haven't pulled that out, would invite you to do that as well. And we are ready to tackle another one another together this morning. Yes? All right. Now, if you're visiting us maybe for the first time today, that might sound like a, kind of an interesting way to get started. But it's not at all odd to for, for me to do that if uh, you know that we have this summer committed ourselves to exploring as a church family a number of the one another commands that we find in God's word. There are no less than 40 one another admonitions that our Heavenly Father has given to his church that are specifically designed to enhance and strengthen the relationships that we have with one another. And you'll find all of those 40 one another's listed on the back side of this little insert page as well. And as you quickly survey this list, it becomes glaringly obvious that any church family that consistently and practically does the things that are on this list of one another's is going to get to share in something really special. That church is going to be one that sees relationships deepening all the time, trust growing between the members of the church family with one another, the serving will increase. Forgiveness will flourish in a way that it has not before. Harmony and unity will be enhanced. And a, a love inescapable and attractive begins to be fleshed out when people are committed to doing these one another's. In a one another church, the word me is replaced by the word we. The word I is traded for the word us. And one anotherism overwhelms individualism as the dominant atmosphere that a church family lives in. The one another's, when they're lived out, transform, really do transform the relational climate of a church and put Jesus on display in very real, tangible, touchable ways. And that is what we are pursuing. That's what we want. We're praying for one anotherism to be the atmosphere that we breathe here in the life of our church family. So your Bible or your phone or your iPad is open to Hebrews chapter 10. The one another that we're going to be taking up today, as you see it there on your little note page, is spur one another on. Spur one another on. It comes out of verse 24 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's pray together and let's just ask the Lord to make this time really count for us. And Father, a moment ago, um, we just asked you in a song to pour your truth into our hearts. And so we want to just be that vessel this morning that you would pour your truth into. And the last thing I want is for friends here to be caught up with me or a delivery style, or even the words that I might choose. What I really ask, Father, is that they would be caught up with you, would be caught up in your truth, that your word would just come to life today for our church family, 
We don't want to be just hearers of it. We want to be doers of it, as James admonishes us to do that. So this is your time. We humble ourselves. We receive what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump into this passage and to verse 24 specifically, how many of you are into healthy food? Yeah, you're into healthy food. How many of you are what you would call a health food person? Not, not, not a ton of hands, but people are pointing fingers. Um, all right, so you, you don't do gummy bears like somebody I know, right? Some of you just don't go there. Um, how many of you don't care about health food at all? You just, whatever it is, man, I just... <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, health food person or not, how many of you here really like a good salad? Cold, ooh, all the hands go up, cold and crisp and refreshing. You'll take a salad any day. Well, you know what? This is your lucky day because we're going to be in this larger passage that verse 24 is a part of. There are four heads of lettuce. Okay? And you say, are you serious, Tim? No, I'm serious. In verse 22, let us draw near to one another. Verse 23, let us hold fast to our hope. Verse 24, let us spur one another on in our faith. And verse 25, let us not give up meeting together. We'll call it the fresh produce section of Hebrews. And you're saying, wow, you're hissing. I can hear you hissing. You're saying that is so silly. And you're right, it is absolutely silly. But I don't mind being silly if it helps you remember this passage. That you write in the margin of your Bible, fresh produce section of Hebrews. <laughs> let us, let us, let us. All right. Now, as we have taken up these one another verses from week to week, if you have been with us on this journey, we have worked hard to be sure we are sensitive to the larger context into which the Holy Spirit sets any of these one another admonitions. Not one of these 41 another's are just isolated statements that kind of hang out in space and do their own thing. They are all anchored to something bigger than themselves. And that is certainly true with verse 24 of chapter 10. It's part of something larger than itself. And if we are going to understand this one another correctly, we need to know what that larger something is, that larger context. So let's start with that. The writer of this letter of Hebrews, if you are not aware of kind of a little bit of the background of the book, just like the book of James last week when we were in that book, this writer is writing to Jewish men and women who have left Judaism and are followers of Jesus Christ. They have given their life to Christ in saving faith. They've paid a high price for doing that. In fact, the writer actually speaks to this in verse 32 of this chapter. If you want to find that verse, he writes this to his readers. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, that is the light of truth found in Jesus, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In other words, these these Christians that this writer is, is addressing, man, they are in the fire. 
right now for their faith in and their love of Jesus. They're feeling firsthand the very real pain of persecution and loss and and imprisonment and being disowned by family and, and alienated by friends. There is in their lives a faith crisis unfolding. They are weary and some of them are ready to toss in the towel. Some of them are ready to to, to let go of Jesus and return back to their old way of Judaism because it won't hurt so much. Jesus hurts. It's, it's, it's tough in their culture and in this time for them to hold on to Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Hebrews pens this letter to call these brothers and sisters back, imploring them not to give up, not to, not to stop running hard after Jesus. Don't quit on Jesus. He didn't quit on you. Look at verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence or your faith. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. So you can just hear the writer. And he he does this throughout the entire book. He is calling his readers back to Jesus over and over again. And it occurs to me that this writer, what he says in verse 24, let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Well, he actually does this himself for this entire letter. He is spurring his readers on, these weary Jewish Christians on in their faith saying, don't quit on Jesus. He didn't quit on you. And so that becomes then the big picture context for our one another in verse 24. But for a more immediate context, let's jump back up to verse 19. And I'll read and you follow along in your Bible. He writes to these weary believers. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, as you see the the return of the Lord becoming more and more of a reality. He's, He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. You do not forsake your assembling of yourselves together. The writer draws upon Old Testament imagery in this passage, obviously, temple worship, and any Jewish reader would, would easily understand what he has just said. But for you and me, it isn't quite that easy because we didn't grow up in Judaism. We didn't grow up with temple worship. We didn't grow up with animal sacrifices and priests serving as mediators between us and God. That's not anything we have experience with. But if we just push through some of the, 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 the Jewish imagery for a moment, here's what the writer of Hebrews actually said. He said the way to enter into a personal relationship with God is through faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross when he died for you, when he died for me. 
and shed his blood to pay our sin debt. Jesus offered the one perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment price to cover every sin we've ever committed and every sin we'll ever commit. His life for our sin debt. God the Father was pleased to accept that. And when we believe, verse 22, with a sincere heart, these truths, that Jesus did that for us, when I believe that Jesus did that for me and you believe that Jesus did that for you, then, verse 19 says, we get to enter the holy place, the place where God is. We can draw near to the living God. Why? Verse 22 says, because our hearts have been made clean. The guilt of our sin has been washed away by Jesus. And God says, draw near. He says, draw near to me. And so all that really the writer has said is that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has opened a new and living way for you and me to be with God. And we all say what? Amen to that. Glory be to God for that. Now, we will only draw near to someone that we know really wants us, right? That, 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 that's true. But God has so demonstrated how much that he wants us, how could we not want to draw near to him? He has given us his very best. Someone has said this about the heart of God. Does he really want you? He's, someone has written this. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If God had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. When you want to talk, he always wants to listen. He could live anywhere in the universe, and he chooses to live inside of you. Face it, friend. He is crazy about you. Draw near, the writer of Hebrews says, because of what Jesus has done. God wants you to do that. And he goes on to point out that because of what Jesus has done for us and because our faith is in Jesus alone, we don't have to, nor can we, add anything to his saving work. Agreed? It's done, right? It is finished. We can only rest totally secure in our relationship with God. In fact, verse 22 says, full assurance of faith is ours because the work of Jesus is so complete. Jesus, in effect, has become our great high priest in heaven, says verse 21. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he serves as our one and only mediator. And so this uncrossable chasm that existed between a holy God and sinful us has been bridged by the person of Jesus Christ. All of that is packaged into this section where we find verse 24. And in light of all of this, these weary in the faith followers of Jesus, because of all that God has done for them, the writer says in verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope you have. For the one who promised all these things is faithful. Do not give up on Jesus because Jesus didn't give up on you. How can you give up on him? That would be the the question of this writer, how can you give up on Jesus? He's never given up on you. And he who promised is faithful. God can't break a promise. If you're in Jesus, you're in. You're in. Yes? Yeah. It'll all be worth it. All the suffering, all the persecution, the losses, the imprisonments, 
It'll all be worth it. Do not give up. God will not, cannot break his promise he made to you in Jesus. Hold the line. Don't give up. That's the big picture. All of this, then, we would say is the setting. If we were thinking about a ring, um, a beautiful ring, that's the setting. And now the Holy Spirit wants to set a gem inside of that. And the gem is verse 24. So, in light of everything we've just talked about, the writer says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We're going to be admonished. We're going to be commanded here by the Spirit of God to think about ways to help our brothers and our sisters not give up on Jesus, ever. This is serious business. This is serious stuff. Me being called to think about how to help you go deeper into Jesus. That's this one another. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Now this one another does not have in mind some kind of a soft, gentle nudge when it uses the word spur one another on. We have a brother or sister in view who's maybe doubting God, questioning their, their decision to trust Jesus, contemplating forsaking all for something else or maybe for nothing else. But it's not, it's not wanting to pursue Jesus anymore. That's serious stuff. This admonition falls into that place. Or maybe we have a brother or sister who's just kind of coasting in their faith, not really doing anything, showing up, but they're stuck. And, and there's no life. There's no motivation. They're kind of going through the motions of the Christian life, but they're not really experiencing the joy and the reality and the power of the Christian life. And we're being called in this verse for the sake of that brother or sister to step up and help them hold on to their first love and not give up. We get an even keener sense of all of this and the urgency with which the writer is is putting this to us as we think about the actual word that he uses in verse 24 for spur on. Now spur on is how this verse is rendered in the NIV. Now, the Greek word is paroxysmos. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Paroxysmos. In the King James, it's translated provoke. Um, in the ESV, it's rendered as stir up. Other versions use the word challenge or stimulate or promote. But the one thing you begin to realize about this word is that this is not a soft word. This is a word with power in it. Paroxysmos only appears here in Hebrews and in one other place in the New Testament. Outside the New Testament, it shows up in other literature, interestingly enough, uh, to describe someone who has a sudden super aggressive sickness and they're attacked by a fever, but it just comes on like a pile driver. Same word is used in that setting. This Eng- the, the English language will eventually borrow this Greek word and transliterate it into the word paroxysm. And how many of you ever use that word? That's not a word we use very often, but it is an English word, and and it's taken from this Greek word, and it means, in our language, it means to react with a sudden outburst of aggression. Or in the medical field, it refers to someone who's experiencing severe physical assault, some kind of an illness that just comes on, and I mean it is powerful and it is painful. And so... What we would say is that this Greek word that that the writer of Hebrews uses is not a nice word. This is not a nice word. You know, there are nice words. There are nice words. They're they're calm words. They're soothing words. They're gentle. They're soft. They're not edgy. They're not hard. Well, paroxysmos is not 
a nice word. It is a hard word, an aggressive word. Spur on, provoke, challenge one another. I can relate to this word because a few years back I had a paroxysm. You said, really, Tim? Yeah, I really did. I had a severe attack. I had a violent outburst of pain that came on within five minutes of my first experiencing it, and I was on the floor. If you were around the Bible church at that time, you might remember that's when I endured my first and only kidney stone. That was a paroxysm, man. I'm telling you, that was excruciating pain. And that pain motivated me. It challenged me. It pushed me all at the same time to never, ever want to go to that place again. In other words, I was spurred on by the pain. I was provoked. I was stirred up. I was pushed forward. I was challenged to take whatever steps possible so that I would never have another kidney stone. And thank you, Lord, I haven't had another kidney stone. And that is the kind of the feel that the writer of Hebrews wants to convey to his faith-weary readers in verse 24. He's not thinking of this in the physical sense, though, but in the spiritual sense. It is a strong word to fit a very serious situation. You're wanting to go down this road, and you need something powerful to pull you back. You need a brother or sister to stir you up, to, to spur you on, to challenge you to do something different. And that's, that's the idea. We want to catch that, the flavor of that. These brothers and sisters were wanting to go back to the old way, back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, brothers and sisters, no, no, no. And then he admonishes us, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and toward good deeds. Away from the comfort zone, and beyond it to something more. That's the idea. And so you see there on your study page, going beyond the comfort zone. It's easy to get into a comfort zone. These first century Hebrew believers wanted to lighten the pain. They wanted to get away from the, the pain of following Jesus. And he's saying, no, don't. Don't do that. And brothers and sisters here at IBC, though, we may not be experiencing the kind of intense persecution that these first century Jewish believers were. And, and none of us, perhaps in this room this morning, are, are considering walking away from Jesus. We can, nevertheless, slide into our own form of 21st century comfort zone Christianity. Do you think that happens? That happens. It happens all the time. And it could happen to us those of us in this room. We could slide into this comfort zone and, and do our Christian life in, in as easy a way as possible. For us, the hazard isn't leaving Jesus because it's too hard in our culture. The hazard may be that we're not going deeper into Jesus because it's easy just to stay where I am. Nobody's pushing me. Nobody's pushing me. We can just stay in our own comfort zone. But we need to realize that to do that, it, it comes with its own set of hazards because that kind of thinking inevitably leads to laziness of spirit, dullness of faith, a routine that gives a, the appearance of a heart pursuing God, but it, it, it really has no life, and the first crisis exposes that. 
Comfort zone thinking can make us nice, decent, respectable folks who are well thought of in our church, but it keeps us really far from drawing near to the heart of God as it's talked about in verse 22. And so for that reason, let us consider how we may spur one another to go beyond the comfort zone and towards love and good deeds. That's the challenge. I, want to he- I would love for you to hear uh, and read the words of a guy who had no desire to do comfort zone Christianity. If you'll keep your finger tucked here in chapter 10 of Hebrews, but then run to the left in your Bible, would you go all the way with me back to the book of Philippians? You have to go back quite a ways. Back to chapter 3 of Philippians. It comes right after the book of Ephesians and just before the book of Colossians, if you're still learning your way around your Bible. Philippians chapter 3, and as you're making your way there, and I love to hear the pages turn. Even if all you're doing is stroking it with your finger on your iPad, it's still great, great to see that. As the Apostle Paul writes this church family in Philippi, there comes this moment when he he just gets very, very personal with them. He recounts how before he encountered the risen Lord Jesus in his life, he did, from a purely earthbound perspective, have everything. Life was good in every way and by any standard for Paul before he met Jesus. But then he meets Jesus and his life gets just turned completely upside down. And even as he writes this letter to the Philippian church, he's writing it from a prison because he's in prison for preaching Jesus. So he is experiencing exactly what the Jewish believers in Hebrews are going through. But listen to his heart. Verse 7, Philippians 3. Whatever was to my profit... Back before I knew Jesus, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And that was literally the case. He'd lost it all. I consider those other things rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from doing good things, but That which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain from the resurrection from the dead. And now watch what happens next. And not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. I haven't arrived, he says, in my Christian life. But I what? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Does that sound like a guy who wants to live in a comfort zone? No way. Brothers, verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the prize was to be with God through faith in Jesus. We read these words and we know there is no comfort zone Christian life for Paul. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 15, All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. I'm pressing on, he says. 
no desire to stay where I am in my relationship with Jesus. And that is the kind of heart, brothers and sisters, that the Hebrew writer longs for for his readers. As we go back to chapter 10 now, going, going, always going beyond comfort zone living and beyond that deeper into Jesus. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so the question becomes for us this morning, how can you, how can I do this verse for each other? How do we do that? How can I do verse 24 for you? And how can you do that for me? Well, as you see it there on your note page, outlined in verse 24 and the first part of verse 25 are essentially five steps that we can take that they just kind of fall naturally out of the verse. Things that we can do, kind of in a progressive order. To spur each other on to love and good deeds, we begin with what? With observation. And that really falls out of the first three words of verse 24. Let us, what's the next word? Consider. Let us consider one another. To consider means to, to take notice of. It means to, to contemplate. It means to focus on intently. Our writer uses this exact same word one other time in his letter back in chapter 3, verse 1. And there he invites us to consider Jesus. The verse actually reads like this. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. It's the word consider, the exact same word that we have here in verse 24. What is the writer saying in chapter 3, verse 1? He's saying, look at Jesus, think about Jesus, focus on Jesus, study Jesus, let your mind be occupied with Jesus. Jesus is the direct object of the verb consider. Consider Jesus. Consider who? Consider Jesus. Is that pretty clear? Yeah. You go to verse 24 of chapter 10, the grammar is exactly the same. The direct object, though, of the word consider in our verse is one another. Consider one another. So what do we do? We think about. We look to. We focus on one another. We study one another. We let our minds be occupied with one another. All of that captured in this word consider. I think about you. You think about me. And only as I know more about you and I learn about where you're at in your walk with Jesus and I get a grasp of your strengths and your weaknesses, do I have any idea of how I can spur you on. If I don't make careful observation of you and your life, I'm not going to know how to spur you on. You're not going to know how to spur me on. And so we begin with that thought. And that feeds right into the second step. After thoughtful observation, there needs to be a strategy, right? A strategy for how I'm going to spur you on. Let us consider, what's the next word? How. How implies a strategy. It's not enough for me just to think about your needs. Places where love or good works might be moved beyond where they are presently in your life. And I kind of inventory that and have my suspicions. I need to prayerfully bring you before my Heavenly Father. I need to ask Him to reveal to me possible ways that, that your life for God and others could be enhanced. Ways your service for Jesus might be enlarged. I need to think about that. 
I observe, and then I strategize. And the writer of Hebrews does this very thing over and over and over again in his letter. He strategizes for how to spur these believers on. Let me give you one instance of this. After he finishes writing chapter 10, he spends the entire 11th chapter of his letter reminding his readers of all of those followers of God in the Old Testament who didn't abandon their faith. You remember this chapter? You know this chapter? We oftentimes call this chapter Faith's Hall of Fame. He talks about name after name after name of persons in the Old Testament who were intensely attacked or persecuted. Some of them were killed, and, and, he, and, he, and he just lays it out, one right after the other, and then we come to chapter 12 and verse 1. If you'll turn there, look at what he writes. Therefore, in light of all of these who have not abandoned their faith in God, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Is he spurring on these readers? You bet he is. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You will not give up. So what does he do? He comes up with a strategy. Remember all the Old Testament saints and remember the amazing work of Jesus on the cross. They didn't quit. Jesus didn't quit. You don't quit. Right? Spurring them on to love and good deeds. That was a strategy, carefully thought out. It was also an action. And that's the third step there on your outline of verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. We've already taken a pretty deep look into the word itself. We know it's not a, a nice word. It's a, a word that calls for aggressive action. I'm, I, I'm, I'm supposed to not be afraid of provoking you, challenging you, pushing you, stirring you up so that you'll go deeper and deeper into your love of the Lord Jesus. I'm, I, I'm not to be afraid of that. But I can take that action, and there's a good way to do it, and there's a not good way to do it. As I've been considering you under step one, and as I've been strategizing for ways to help you in step two, I'm also taking into consideration who you are, your unique personality, and the places that you are at, you, you are, you're at, the place you're at in your journey with Jesus. Are you just starting out your journey, or are you miles down the road? Knowing those things about you is, is going to shape greatly how I spur you on. But no matter where you are or how you're wired and put together by God, as I take action to spur you on, brother or sister, I have to make sure that I do that in a loving way. Absolutely has to happen. I don't blow into your life and drop a paroxysm, a bomb on you, right? That, that will not work. And again, I, I'm praying about how to spur you on to be the, the, the very best possible in the very best possible place in your walk with Jesus in that moment. And I spur you on, not with a desire to hurt you, but to help you. And, and, and honestly, brothers and sisters, there are going to be times when we do not get this right. 
when we, when we don't get this right because we frequently love in an imperfect way. So when I'm seeking to spur you on to greater love and good deeds, I'm going to need you to extend to me much grace because I'm going to get in your face, right? In a loving way. And I'm going to spur you on. My motive is right. As I challenge and provoke you, I want more for you. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to extend grace to me if I, if I don't do that really well. If I don't love you really well in that moment. And I'm going to need you to extend me grace. Well, I, I'm going to need to, to extend you grace when you get in my face, right? The very fact that someone cares enough to try to put verse 24 into play in my life, man, hopefully that makes me receptive, even if I don't like what I'm being told. But that person's loving me, and if I can keep the big picture, that will help me try to do that. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 4 in a section where he is calling a whole church family to move from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Here's what he says. Ephesians 4.15 Instead, speaking the truth in what? Love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in what? Love as each part does it work, does its work. Growing up into Jesus, spurring you on, you spurring me on, we do that in love. And that gives us the direction as well, doesn't it? Growing up into who? Into Jesus. That's what Paul said. That's where we all want to be going, right? It's where I want to be going. It's where you want to be going too. Verse 24 says that. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward what? Love and good deeds. Love is at the heart of it. Love is who God is. Love is what Jesus made real at the cross. Love is the fulfillment of the greatest commandments from God to us. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever we can do to foster that in one another moves us in the right direction. And if it doesn't do that, we shouldn't be doing it. And from the place of love flows service, good works that honor God and bless others. The good works are never about us. They're always about him. We spur each other on to the great goal of loving God, loving others, and serving well. Oh, and I tell you, church family, as one of the pastors here at IBC, may my prayer would be that I would only ever spur you on to love Jesus more. To love your God more. Because I know that if I'm doing that, the good works will take care of themselves. And if we're all doing that, we're going to make a difference for Jesus. The last step in this spurring on one another command flows out of verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Apparently, these weary in the faith Christians were disconnect, disconnecting from their church family. And, and the writer says, no, do not do that, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, but do not stop being together. There's a saying that, it take, there's a saying that goes like this. It takes a village to raise a what? 
It takes a village to raise a child. We all understand that. Um, a family needs support. That's the idea. It takes a village to raise a child. And I think the writer of Hebrews is thinking in the very same vein, only he would say it a little differently. He would say it takes a church family to grow a true lover of Jesus. Right? Support. Do not forsake. Being together. You need each other to go deeper into Jesus. Spurring one another on to greater love and greater good works. I cannot imagine doing this thing called the Christian life alone. Can you? That's why you never see one hint about a Lone Ranger Christian in God's word. That person doesn't exist. I wouldn't even want to try to do the Christian life by myself. Support. I want you and I need you to keep me out of the comfort zone. And you need me to do that. One anotherism takes over a church when its people are really doing verse 24. By observing one another carefully, by praying for insight and help, for strategies, taking loving action to provoke and challenge and push each other forward, always in the direction of growing deeper into Jesus through love and service and all the while being connected to a supporting church family. Man, that's where one anotherism grows. That's where it happens. People see Jesus in a place like that. And we want people to see Jesus. Amen? And so our prayer would be, let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's pray together. And once again, our appeal to you, Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, is that we would not be doers of, or not be hearers of the word only, but the but be, but be doers of it. We don't want to just hang out for 45 minutes and hear all this stuff. We want to be doing it. And I just ask for this with greatest humility, but with great expectation and hope, Father, that, that we would love each other enough to risk pushing each other deeper into you. Help us to be gracious to receive those challenges from a brother or sister. May we not be afraid to challenge. None of us want to live in the comfort zone. We want to be out in front, running the race with you, Lord Jesus, going deeper and deeper and deeper with you. It'll only happen as you release the power of your spirit and we yield our hearts up to you. Make it so. For your glory, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand?